We invite you now to stand as you're able to for the reading of God's word. Today's reading from the word of God comes from Luke chapter 1, verses 67 to 79. Please follow along in your Bibles on the screen behind me or listen as I read the scriptures. Once again, that's Luke chapter 1, verses 67 through 79. Following the reading, I invite you to respond in worship with the singing of the doxology. At that time, you're invited. At that time, children are invited to join kids, kids crew through the door on your right. Now let's hear the word of the Lord. Then John's father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and gave this prophecy. Praise the Lord, the God of Israel, because He has visited and redeemed His people. He has sent us a mighty savior from the royal line of his servant David, just as he promised through his holy prophets long ago. Now we will be saved from our enemies and from all who hate us. He has been merciful to our ancestors by remembering his sacred covenant, the covenant he swore with an oath to our ancestor Abraham. We have been rescued from our enemies so we can serve God without fear in holiness and righteousness for as long as we live. And you, my little son, will be called the prophet of the Most High, because you will prepare the way for the Lord. You will tell his people how to find salvation through forgiveness of their sins. Because of God's tender mercy, the morning light from heaven is about to break upon us to give light to those who, who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death and to guide us to the path of peace. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. Good morning. It is so amazing to be here. It really is. Uh, for those who don't know me, my name is Marcus Privet. I have a roundabout way of got, I, how I got here this morning, like the Ethan mentioned, but to keep it super brief, I was uh, part of High Rock North Shore, which is Anchor Bay Church's former name, in 2014, and I served four years there on staff. And then in 2018, I jumped all in on the High Rock Haverhill Church plant, now known as Haverhill Commons Church and uh, served as pastor there for two years. And in the process of moving to Haverhill to help start Haverhill Commons Church, I met my now wife, Caroline. Caroline is a midwife. It's one of the hardest jobs on our planet. Uh, and I, she got a three-year three job, three-year job contract way out in the foreign land known as New York. Uh, so when we got married, I moved out there to be with her. And as her contract ended and we were thinking about what's next for us, we really wanted to come back to Haverhill Commons Church. So we did. We're home. This is a homecoming for us. Um, there are lots of details and ups and downs and high moments and low moments and all that, but what I want you all to hear this morning is I love this church. This church is where I preached my first ever sermon. This is where I learned how to be a pastor. This is where I learned how to be a Christian in many ways, too. Lots of life and stories and memories for me here. So again, I don't mean this lightly. It is such a gift for me to be here this morning. Well, my being here this morning also means that Pastor Bryn is away preaching this morning at Haverhill Commons. We did a little preacher swap. And I just have to do this. I want to start off this morning by giving you two facts about Bryn that you can have from me absolutely free, okay? When Bryn's away, Marcus will play. First, Bryn is a super fan of this kind of uh, weird, edgy, young adult, supernatural horror romance show called Teen Wolf. <laughs> 
The show is about a teenage boy getting bit by a werewolf and navigating all the pressures that come with that. Meanwhile, he's navigating all the pressures of another horror, puberty. All of these urges, all these changes in his body. Is he a human or is he a werewolf or is he a little bit of both? There are 100 episodes across six seasons. And Pastor Brent, your lead pastor, has watched the entire thing twice. <laughs> well, we're going to skip right over the fact that she convinced me to watch it too, and I ended up really liking it. But this is not about me this morning. Brynn has watched 200 episodes of Teen Wolf. Okay, so that's one. This next one, this next one I sourced from her husband, Aaron. Uh, so one time, Brynn went to a movie, and when the movie got out, Brynn called her husband, Aaron. Aaron picked up, only to hear Pastor Brynn absolutely just sobbing on the phone. She was just in hysterics. And Brynn proceeded to share that she was so moved by this movie and its message that she just couldn't hold it together and she had to call her husband the love of her life. The movie was Turbo. <laughs> the animated movie from 2013 where a snail wins the Indy 500. I haven't, I haven't seen it, so it may be amazing. Sorry if there's any Turbo fans out there. But I was shocked to find uh, that Turbo the Snail, and yes, his name is indeed Turbo, he doesn't win the Indy 500 by, by training to get faster or believing in himself. Turbo gets faster because he falls into a pool of nitrous oxide and comes out of the pool part snail, part car. The nitrous oxide somehow transformed his genetic makeup into, from a snail to a car. To which I ask, what is your pastor watching in her spare time? <laughs> Last I checked, we're transformed by the Holy Spirit <laughs> to look more like Jesus. We're not transformed by nitrous oxide to look more like cars. <laughs> I have questions about your pastor's theology this morning. All right, those are your two Bryn stories. I can go on and on this morning. I'll stop while I'm ahead. Uh, and if you, if you do remember anything from my intro here, just tell Bryn that I just mentioned how grateful I am to be here this morning. Um, before we jump in, let's, uh, let's go to the Lord in silence, and let's wait a beat, and uh, I'll pray for us before we get started. Christ our Lord, thank you for this room. Thank you for this building. Thank you for these people, these people who have meant so much for me in my life. Jesus, we meet you. We bring to you all those moments this week that are sitting on us right now those moments that can distract us or cloud us from seeing you and hearing you. Right now, Father, we, we set down any pride that we may have, and we approach you in humility today. You are worthy of that humility, God. We invite you now to speak to us through our ancestors uh, in faith and our ancestors in scriptures. Meet us, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. If there were a big idea word that you could use to describe the stories of scripture, the word waiting may be a good one. So many stories in scripture highlight people waiting for something or someone to come. Last week, Brandman spotlighted a man in Jerusalem named Simeon. Simeon was waiting for the consolation of Israel. And as Bryn said in her sermon, for Simeon, it was not a matter of if, but when. Not if God would act, but when God would act. Two weeks ago, Pastor Ethan talked about the waiting that was baked into Prophet Isaiah's words, a waiting that eventually found its fruition into a young Jewish woman named Mary in the birth of Jesus. And when it comes to the kind of waiting that Simeon and Mary did, it's easier 
when there are companions around and you have community. It's easier when there's a nine-month established timeline to your waiting. It's easier when you're able to look down and see a real-life baby, Jesus, in front of you, proof that God is acting in your world. But what if you don't have those things? What if the weight of waiting eventually just becomes too heavy for you? What if you're growing just too tired to wait anymore? I'm not talking about the kind of tired that comes from being up late. I'm talking about that, that deep, indefinite kind of tired. That kind of tired that comes from waiting years and years and years for a relationship to maybe get better waiting for things to lighten up, waiting for things to change, waiting for that certain outcome and that certain situation that may or may not ever come. The kind of tire that makes you groan for change. The kind of tire that lends itself to cynicism and doubt. The kind of tire that causes us to despair. Despair isn't just feeling down or sad about something. Despair is the complete loss of hope. It's like a de-hope. It's like an unhope. It's when our hope unravels. It's when we accept defeat and give up. There are areas in my life right now in which I am despairing. Areas where I've grown tired of waiting for God to move, waiting for God's kingdom to come. There are arenas in my life where, honestly, I'm so down and out about it that I'm just rolling my eyes at anything that even sounds like hope. And when I'm in despair, I don't feel anger or frustration because anger or frustration suggests that I care about it. More often, when I'm in despair, I just feel apathy. I'm just numb to it. Maybe some of us are dabbling with despair right now. At our best, we can fake a smile, we can say the right thing, survive another day. Sure, life may knock us around a bit, but we show up, we speak up, we believe that God's kingdom is coming. But at our worst, as we wait and wait and wait and wait some more for that certain outcome in that certain situation, it just doesn't come. And eventually we ask, why care? It's so easy to stop caring. And as we cease to care, we imagine that God ceases to care, too. Despair. I think the season of Advent can be especially uh, messed up for us here in New England, too. Um, Supposedly, these are weeks for us to celebrate God's coming in anticipation that God's going to come again. It's a season that's filled with Christmas lights and festive carols, glitter, twinkle, tinsel everywhere. Yet the days get shorter. The night gets darker. We get a little heavier around our waist, (laughs) becomes harder to leave the house. In so many ways, for us, Advent represents an invitation to hope, but it also represents a temptation to despair, a despair that wants to unravel our hope. It's the kind of despair that Zechariah and Elizabeth felt, the parents of John the Baptist. Zechariah and Elizabeth are the very first two people that we meet in Luke's Gospel. And they are the rock star power couple. Zechariah is a priest. Elizabeth is also from the priestly line. They know the promises of God inside and out. And this isn't just head knowledge for them. We are told in the scriptures that Zechariah and Elizabeth are righteous in God's eyes. God's promises are informing the way that they live and engage the world around them. But despite their best efforts, despite all the prayers and hopes for the future, they were waiting for one thing that may or may not come. 
a child. They could not conceive and bear a child. They hoped and prayed and knew that God could move, but over time, God doesn't move. More time passes, God doesn't move in their life. Even more time passes, God doesn't move in their life. And before long, they started to unravel at the possibility and the likelihood they wouldn't and couldn't be parents. I want to pause here because statistically, if I may, I, many of us here today know Elizabeth and Zechariah's pain of waiting for a child. The monthly cycle of hope and heartbreak. Each month is a roller coaster of hope and expectation, followed by intense feelings of disappointment, sadness, anger, fear, failure, helplessness, guilt, embarrassment, envy, and perhaps eventually despair. Enduring the looks, the questions, the assumptions, the awkward interactions from friends and family and coworkers. Think about any gathering that we have, especially around the holidays. How long does it take before someone makes a well-intended but misguided comment in the presence of a couple who's silently struggling through infertility? And this is just considering a couple's world. There's a whole other branch of waiting that's spoken of even less. It's the single person's waiting. The single person who desperately wants to find a partner, who desperately wants a family, but so far hasn't had the opportunity for a spouse, let alone parenthood. For many singles, this too can easily transition to despair. The struggle is real, and it was real for Elizabeth and Zechariah too. In public, Zechariah and Elizabeth lead a faith community, a community who is waiting for Messiah, something, someone that may or may not come. Meanwhile, in private, Zechariah and Elizabeth wait for a child, something, someone that may not come. Everybody's waiting for an outcome. And everyone's getting tired of waiting. It's the kind of tire that lends itself to apathy, doubt, cynicism, despair. Which makes the moment when everything starts to change that much more powerful for them. Miraculously, an angel of the Lord named Gabriel appears to Zechariah and speaks. The angel says, don't be afraid, Zechariah. God has heard your prayer. Your wife, Elizabeth, will give you a son and you are to name him John. Hold that last line in the back of your mind for a second. God has heard your prayer, Zechariah. You are to name him John. If you're taking notes, highlight it. Got it. We're going to come back to that later. Gabriel continues, verse 15. Your son will be great in the sight of the Lord. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before his birth. He will prepare the people for the coming of the Lord. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, and he will cause those who are rebellious to accept the wisdom of the godly. In other words, God, through Gabriel, is saying to Zechariah, dude, the day of Messiah is coming. Wars, wars will cease. Diseases will be no more. Families will reconcile. Poverty will disappear. Creation is going to be made new. And your child, yes, Zechariah, your child will be the one who is leading the way, pointing us all to this new age. Amazing. Finally, Zechariah receives something from the Lord. But look how Zechariah responds in the text. How can I be sure this will happen? I'm an old man now, and my wife is well along in years. How can I be sure this will happen? Notice something here. 
notice what Zechariah is questioning. He doesn't question that God will fulfill God's promises. He doesn't doubt that this is the beginning of a new age to come. He has no problems with God being the mover of history and the bringer of salvation. Rather, Zechariah is doubting that God cares about him and Elizabeth enough to act in their life. He doubts that God is invested enough in them to overcome their circumstances. How can I be sure this will happen? Zechariah knows that God can overcome any circumstance, generally speaking, for other people, on, on, on a corporate level. But on a smaller level, within his marriage, within his family, he's grown so tired of waiting that he's no longer sure God cares. For Zechariah, hope has unraveled. It's an unhope. It's a de-hope. It's despair. And how relatable this unraveling can be for us, especially those who have been in the church a long time. We believe God can save that life. We believe that God can heal their disease, ease their poverty, find them a job, grant them financial security, find them a spouse, bring revival in that country. But me? My life? My sickness? My addiction? My marriage? My coworkers? My country? My government? My soul? My loneliness? God doesn't care about that. God doesn't care about me or my people enough to make that happen. Unhope. That's de-hope. That's despair. Look how the angel Gabriel responds. He doesn't console Zechariah. He doesn't try to convince Zechariah or, or comfort him. Gabriel's angry. Verse 19, I am Gabriel. I stand in the very presence of God. It was God who sent me to bring you this good news. But now, since you didn't believe what I said, you will be silent and unable to speak until the child is born. For my words will certainly be fulfilled at the proper time. Yikes. This is a different kind of angel than we're used to seeing on Hallmark cards and, and, and nativity scenes. Like a parent to a child, Gabriel has to put Zechariah in timeout. And for this foreseeable future, Zechariah, the priest, the priest, is not able to physically speak to anyone, not even his pregnant wife. Zechariah is faithful and righteous in all areas of his life except for this one thing, the desire for a child. This one calloused and cynical spot in his heart. He has waited and prayed for this one good thing, but this thing has become so essential to him. And in all that mystery and waiting and questioning, he unravels. So much so that even when an angel comes into his room and stands before him, Zechariah still isn't sure that God cares enough about him to do anything in his life. Gabriel just assured Zechariah what's about to happen, and Zechariah is so deep into despair that he cannot see the hope that God is promising to drop right in his lap. And that's what despair does. Despair kills hope. So we would think, as readers, as we continue to walk through this passage, by the time that we see the child born, nine months later, Zechariah will have learned his lesson. He's going to get his voice back. 
you would think that we'd get this amazing scene that I have in my head, right? The baby is born, and the baby starts crying, and then the camera slowly pans over, and then dad starts crying, and he makes noise, and we cue the music, and we set up the Hallmark ending. But that's not what happens in our story. Over the course of the pregnancy, Zechariah can't talk. Elizabeth gives birth to a child. Zechariah still can't talk. Even after labor, while he and his wife stare down at their newborn child, Zechariah can't talk. As, as I prepared the sermon this past week, there was an instant in which I was picturing these moments, and I actually started crying at my desk. Zechariah couldn't cry or shout or cheer or even speak with Elizabeth, his wife, when their child was born. Imagine how heartbreaking that was. We'd think that having the baby would give Zechariah his voice back, but that's not what happens in the story. It's almost as if there may be something else going on in Zechariah that needs to be addressed. Eight days go by. Zechariah still can't talk. Zechariah and Elizabeth and their respective families are at the child's circumcision ceremony. It's a dedication ceremony of sorts uh, in which traditionally babies are given their name at this ceremony. And it was common and it was expected to name firstborn sons after someone in the family. So the family wants to go the traditional route and name the child after the father. Almost how we would call the child Zechariah Jr. today. After all, this child was the family's reward for waiting all those years. Of course, you should name it after the family. But shockingly, cutting through that conversation, there is a voice that disagrees with tradition here. Elizabeth, of all people, speaks up. No, she says. His name is John. No, his name is John. On the surface, it may seem like Elizabeth is just preferring one name over another. But beneath the surface, there is something more profound happening here. Remember, the name John isn't some random name that Elizabeth just likes out of the baby book. The name John was the name that God gave the child. The name came from God. It didn't come from Zechariah or Elizabeth or their families. Elizabeth has waited so long for this child to come into her life. She's finally looking down at this baby, this precious gift, and everything in her must be screaming to cling to this baby, to protect him, to keep him, to hold him tight, to name him after the family and make him hers. But even in the face of traditional and family and cultural pressure, Elizabeth says, no, I want to name him John. Not Zechariah, not Zechariah Jr., not after Zechariah's dad, not after the great-grandfather or the second uncle. She wants it to be John. This name matters to her. It's almost like by naming the child John instead of a family name, Elizabeth is reminding herself and declaring to herself and to the room that this child is God's child first. This child is such a gift, yes, but he is not a gift for her to own and possess. Elizabeth knows that just like the child comes from God, the name has to come from God too. John. His name will be John. Immediately, there's confusion. There's no one in all your family by that name, the family say. So the room turns to dad and sees what the father will decide. 
They all looked at Zechariah, who still can't talk. They all looked at Zechariah, who doubted God cared. Zechariah, who, have, who has been so angry and discouraged by all those moments that were different than what he imagined. Zechariah motions for a writing tablet. He picks it up and writes, his name is John. And this, this moment, here is the moment where the tension of the story breaks. This is the moment where Zechariah gets his voice back, when he finally agrees that the child's name will be John. This child isn't about him and Elizabeth getting what they want. For Zechariah, it clicks. Zechariah, like Elizabeth before him, chooses to surrender the child, a child he desperately waited so long for, back to God. Not my child. This is God's child. His name is John. Zechariah was able to heal that one callous spot in his life when he surrendered that desire back to God. His name is John. This morning, I suspect many of us here are hoping for something. And for some of us, that waiting and that hoping is turning into despair. Apathy, doubt, numbness, we're tired in our, in, in our despair, like Zechariah, we are losing our voice. Before, we could see God's moving, and we would sing and exclaim and celebrate, but now our hope is unraveling. Exciting moments are happening around us, but now we're just flat. We're here, but we're not here. We're not recognizing ourselves anymore. We're just floating around, making our way through, because we're just too tired to hope anymore. And we're starting to wonder if God cares anymore either. But what I think this text is asked, asking us this morning, what are you putting your hope in? Where's your hope coming from? Because when we haven't surrendered all, and when we continue to put our hope in things or circumstances, inevitably, our hopes will get crushed. We will, get, we will be let down. We will get cynical. We will get apathetic. We will get calloused. Because that thing or that circumstance, it is not meant to be, and it will never be the source of our hope. True hope. And if we withhold our surrender until we obtain the thing the way that we want the thing, I promise hope will be no more than an up-and-down emotion that you feel on your good days and an emotion that disappears on your bad days. And our understanding of God will go right there with it. And maybe some of you are hearing the story and thinking, okay, I'm tracking, I'm, I got it, like, that, that sounds great. But Zechariah and Elizabeth still got what they waited for, <laughs> right? Their despair did end, not by uh, feel-good faithism or by a good sermon that was preached. Their despair ended because they actually got a baby. <laughs> and yes, from a certain point of view, that's right. This is a victory story. This is a miracle. Zechariah and Elizabeth did receive a child they received the gift of becoming parents, and they received the gift of raising a kid together. Praise the Lord for that. But from another point of view, this is a tragedy story. Remember, this child grows up to be John the Baptist, a man who rightfully is revered and respected as part of our faith history. He's the one who points us to Messiah. Yet think about the life that Zechariah and Elizabeth just signed up for. Think about the life that they have to witness from here on out. 
John the Baptist was a man who lived a life on the outskirts. He was alone. He lived on locusts and honey. A life that ended when the government identifies him as a political threat and orders his assassination. This was hardly the life that Zechariah and Elizabeth could have wanted for John. And this isn't the hallmark ending that you dream up for your newborn baby. John was used by God, but his life doesn't end in personal triumph or glory. It ends in sacrifice and death. And so when it comes to their baby boy, it's almost as if God knew that they first had to come to a place of complete surrender in order for them to parent well and effectively. And if they didn't, they would come to a place of despair towards God, towards one another, or even this child and the child's outcome. Zechariah regains his voice not when he gets a son that he can call his idealistic baby boy and create this idealistic dream life for him. Zechariah regains his voice when he recognizes that while, God, while John might be their child, ultimately John is first and foremost God's child. A child not to cling to or insulate or protect, but a gift to release back to God. John's not the source of Zechariah's hope. John cannot be the source of Zechariah's hope. God has to be that. In the same way that my heart might be beating, but it's not my heart. In the same way that every breath that we take belongs to the Lord first. Everything that we have, our money, our power, our families, our dearest held dreams, our cries for justice, our discontentment, our pleas for mercy, our desire for control to make things different, these are all wonderful and good things, but they're not the source of our hope. Hope is not lost if these things don't come to our, to our lives. Hope has already come. Hope has already been given. The source of hope is not circumstances or things. The source of our hope is Jesus. And we are invited to name our hopes, the things that we desperately want, but we must surrender them back to the giver. The way through despair is, is not getting the thing, but the way to despair is surrendering the thing back. Surrendering in no way just means giving up. It doesn't mean rolling over and dying, welcoming any outcome that comes your way. Surrendering to Jesus means boldly and faithfully identifying what you want. Naming the thing that you care deeply about. Naming the thing that your soul is groaning for, while at the same time saying, Lord, I trust you with this. I trust you with my life and with this thing, and it's not my will, but it is your will be done here. Maybe you're waiting for something that isn't coming to be. Maybe it's in finances that aren't coming together. Maybe it's a sickness that unendingly plagues your families. Maybe you're having the same argument with a spouse or your friend for the 100th time because you were let down again for the 100th time. Maybe it's in a frustrating political cycle of argument. Maybe you're tired because you're just tired of scrolling past the headlines of random death and murder. Maybe we are growing cynical at that always elusive prospect of racial equity. Maybe our hearts are hardening right now as we consider what it will really take to actually start valuing and affirming women in our world. Maybe you're despairing because you've said the same thing to the same people over and over again, and they aren't listening to you. 
Maybe you're despairing simply because you're lonely. And you just don't want to feel lonely anymore. The place where you feel like all hope is lost. The places where you're growing apathetic and numb and cynical. These are the places where the gospel must break through. This is where Advent wants to shake us and point us back to truth. And the message of Advent is that when we were tempted to, to despair, we didn't fix our problems by manufacturing or mustering up more hope so that we can push through and persevere. Advent tells us that hope came here. When we were broken, when we were in despair, hope came to us regardless of what has happened in our lives or what hasn't happened in our lives. The source of hope cannot and must not be the thing that we want the way that we want it. The source of our hope must be Jesus. Jesus, who's always with us. Regardless if specific prayers are answered today, tomorrow, or never, hope is here because of the God who came to us. Hope is here because of the God who comes to us and who is with us from the day of despair to the day of delight. Amen? Our Advent series this year is called Rejoice, Rejoice, the Savior Comes. And each week we've been looking at a verse from the song, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, and seeing where it connects to Scripture. The lyrics the past two weeks have been about waiting. This morning, our lyrics show a hope finally breaking through. Hope reframing our circumstances. Hope retranslating our circumstances. They paint an image of Christ's arrival into our world, and they reorient our gaze from despair back to Christ. Here are the lyrics. O come, thou dayspring, come and cheer. Our spirits by thine advent here. Disperse the gloomy clouds of night, and death's dark shadows put to flight. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel, shall come to thee. O Israel. These lyrics don't portray hope as some generic feel-good concept. These lyrics show a hope that comes to us. Come, thou dayspring, come and cheer. Hope breaks in. Hope interrupts despair. Hope enters into a dark sky and moves the darkness out of our vision. Disperse the gloomy clouds of night and death's dark shadows put to flight. And ultimately, it's the arrival of hope. It's the presence of Jesus that inspires the author's rejoicing. The author doesn't rejoice because the clouds are gone and the sky looks pretty. The writer rejoices because hope has broken through and entered into the writer's world, reinterpreting and reframing and changing the circumstances around the author. Rejoice, rejoice. Emmanuel shall come to thee Oh Israel, that is hope. Hope is that Jesus came. Hope is that Jesus is coming again. I want to close this morning by quoting Zechariah himself and rereading the passage that was read for us. When Zechariah gets his voice back, the first thing that he does is he sings a song over his baby boy. It's a baby boy who will change everything for Zechariah and Elizabeth, but also change everything for the world. These words did not come easy for Zechariah. He labored for them. 
He went through the darkness of despair, and he had his own song of hope shattered so that he could sing a new song of hope. Hear the surrender in his words as he sings over his baby. Hear how Zechariah says, not my will, but yours be done. Zechariah sings, and you, my little son, will be called the prophet of the Most High, because you will prepare the way for the Lord. You will tell his people how to find salvation through forgiveness of their sins. Because of God's, God's tender mercy, the morning light from heaven is about to break upon us, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, and to guide us to the path of peace. That's Advent. That's gospel. Jesus came, and Jesus is coming again. In Christ, and only, only in Christ, our hopes are already, right now, satisfied with a resounding yes, even if we don't fully realize or see that yes until the day of new creation. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, you know, you know what it's like to despair. You know what it's like to wonder if God is with you or if God cares. Jesus, we praise you for, for walking that path for us first. We praise the Spirit now for partnering with us, helping us walk that path for us with you, with the Spirit, with one another. Lord, you who, you who broke through and who gave us hope, we give you the areas of our lives right now, the relationships, the, the jobs, the heartbreak. We give you those areas of our life where hope is unraveling or hope has already unraveled. We give you the arenas in which we are just too tired to care. May this Advent be a season in which our hope is repaired and healed. Breathe anew in us, Lord. Bring a revival in our souls, Jesus. We can't ma manufacture that alone. We can't magically muster hope to push through and fake smiles anymore. You are in us, Jesus. You must give us hope. Point us back to the source of true hope, you. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Son. Thank you, Spirit. Amen.